Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Discovery Debrief, a podcast that dives headfirst into the proverbial deep end of the latest trek into the final frontier, Star Trek Discovery. I'm co-host Chris Clow, and I'm joined by our full complement of our bold panel of Star Trek franchise explorers, including Rachel Clow. Hey, Chris. Hello, Zaki Hassan. Greetings. And Cicero Holmes. Ariam, I'm so sorry. <laughs> You're going to make us all cry like at the very beginning of the episode. My I God. do this. You, <laughs> you do. So, as I said at the beginning of the last episode, we're in the process of playing a little bit of catch up with the episodes that we've missed over the last couple of weeks. So, we decided to try and catch up as quickly as possible by doubling up the episodes that we talk about into two recordings. So, with that, we are concluding our catch-up session by discussing Season 2, Episodes 11 and 12, respectively titled Perpetual Infinity and Through the Valley of Shadows. Of course, though, we're going to ease into our episode discussions by talking about what everyone's been up to since the last time we all got together. But hey, since most of us just recorded 48 hours ago and three of us caught you up on what we've been up to, this is an all-Zacky edition of what have you been up to. So I'm tempted to just go with this. But hopefully it hasn't been that bad. I, I, I feel like I need to I need to come up with something to complain about now and now that you've played that. <laughs> Did you ever well, notice? Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Zachy, you know, we we actually, I'm not sure if you got a chance to listen to the last episode, but not yet. You know, we we caught up with what we were up to, but we also talked a little bit about what we all thought of Captain Marvel and Shazam. So, what have you been up to? And as a side note, what did you make of those movies? Well, uh, I have been up to the usual thing where I'm just racing uh, from school to school. Uh, uh, hoping to put right what once went wrong. Um, uh, so just, yeah, we're, I'm, I'm, my semester is winding down. So it's, it's just ridiculous as, but you know, what's funny is I realize I, I'd be like, Oh man, my semester just started. It's ridiculous. I'd be like, man, it's midterms. It's ridiculous. Semester's <laughs> winding down. It's ridiculous. I should just be like, it is ridiculous. There will be no non-ridiculousness. <laughs> this is it. This is just how it is. I need to come to terms with that. This is just what uh, you do now. Th- this is who I am. I know. Uh, but in in regards to your other question about the, about the two Captain Marvels is is currently, uh, I I I liked them both to varying degrees. I would say I liked the DC Captain Marvel, aka Shazam, slightly more. Mm-hmm. Um, however, uh, I appreciate the fact that so many people have enjoyed the Captain Marvel from the the actual Captain Marvel, the Marvel one. Uh, yeah. Even as I was not over the moon about it, I love that a lot of people are. It sounds like you are probably in line with Rachel and I right. on on which one we liked a little bit better. Hmm. But uh, yeah, I, th- I think that that's a, that's a fair assessment. Cicero, what do you think about that? Oh, well, yeah, of course it's a fair assessment, and, uh, especially since- Yeah, but um, you just you like going after him, so yeah, I'm hitting I, you two I, against yes, each other. exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, we- <laughs> <laughs> Zachy Zachy is the film critic amongst us, so um, you know I must defer to his expertise. Um, but uh, as I said uh, a a quaint forty eight hours ago, um, I enjoyed 
Um, while I enjoyed them both very, very much, um, I enjoyed what they were what they did with um with Captain Marvel proper uh uh as opposed to uh, well not even as opposed to i enjoyed what they did with captain marvel thematically from the from the standpoint of all of the marvel films seem to have a theme um outside of outside of most of the captain america films winter soldier obviously an excellent espionage film the iron man films are just kind of you know paint by numbers action films um but the the other kind of offshoot ones, the Guardians are goofy. Like they all have their own kind of theme to them. Ant Man is a heist film, um, and you know the Guardians are you know wacky sci fi kind of comedic you know uh, Star Wars. Um, and this film, Captain Marvel, felt like a buddy cop film between Carol Danvers and Nick Fury. And I was saying that even over the, you know, over the course of 21 films, we have seen Nick Fury, but this was the first film that we got to know Nick Fury. Uh, I and I, I think, I think that that it's going to be interesting for those people who have seen Captain Marvel when they finally go to see Endgame because, you know, the world will stop when Endgame releases. Um, <laughs> it will, it, it will definitely be interesting to see. Um, how people react, how people feel um, internally about Nick Fury um, when they see him on the screen. I, I, I have this, I have this sense that people will feel like they know him at a at a much deeper and more intimate level uh, than they had had they you know prior to seeing Captain Marvel. And I think that's yeah. that's something that that may have been overlooked, and is definitely something that that I've kind of planted my flag on. Huh. I I I liked all of the Nick Fury Carol Danvers stuff. I think the the issue I had, and and I should couch this by saying this is not an issue that is universal, so I I, I don't want to act like I'm speaking on anybody else's behalf, but I didn't feel like I got a real great handle on who Carol is. Sure. Um, and and I, so, so I appreciated what the filmmakers were trying to do. And and I liked that, but but the movie ends, and you know, I the the comparison I made is like I needed a moment, like um, you know, w when Doctor Erskine tells uh, Steve Rogers, you know, you're like where he points at his chest, and he, you know, meaning you're you're a good man or stay a good man, or something like right. that, something that really buttons the character in a very easy way. And I feel like, well, we we like Carol Danvers because we're supposed to like her, but we didn't. There was an opportunity in the backstory to to enrich that beyond just well she's the hero of the movie because that's who the movie's named after you know and Man, it's not really, so, she's never she's never called Captain Marvel in the movie right it? no no she's not she's not it's kind of uh, it's kind of so, Man so, of Steel yeah right you know I I I feel like you know one theory I've heard is that like she will adopt the name cap the title captain in avengers endgame in honor of perhaps a a, a captain who who oh, who, oh, who, 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 oh good god right. oh no he's the big captain right yes <laughs> oh, um but, you know the, the there's the thing at the end near the end where 
uh, she's talking to to Jude Law. Jude Law's like, right. prove prove yourself to me, and she's like, I don't right, have to right. And that moment is fantastic. Yes, uh, it's great, and I get what it means, not just in terms of the character, but also in a broader sense in terms of the discourse about you know feminism, right. Um, but you know, so so the the what I've heard from people is like, man, that moment, like especially from women, like, oh man, that moment, just I felt that, and I'm like, that's awesome. I'm glad you felt that. Uh, I wish I had felt it in the same way. Yeah. So I, you know, and when you were talking about, you didn't feel like there was that moment, that was definitely the moment that I was thinking of that. It was, it was th- that moment, uh, kind of encapsulated the entire, the entirety of the movie and the entirety of what we knew about Carol Danvers, where, um, I think they sent, they spent a, a lot of time. And this is one of the things that I really, uh, enjoy and appreciate about this film is the fact that they were so very subtle. Like they were, there were a lot of overtones about, uh, you know, woman power and girl power and how this was going to be empowering for, for women. And, and, you know, well, you know it's, and, it's, and, it's, and, fun, it's funny that you say that though, right. because. Rachel told me I not think the exact opposite, Cicero. Right. You told you told me after we walked out of it that you felt pandered to. Yeah, you? I was like, I, I felt like they didn't characterize her beyond like, well, I mean, they they did to some extent, but I felt like they leaned way too heavily on like she's a girl. Well, so well, I. I feel like Wonder Woman did more of that than because, you know, like Wonder Woman had a, a, you know, a nonsensical love interest, um, you know, that really didn't it didn't really drive the story above and beyond. It's not nonsensical. He's Chris Pine. Right. Yes. Ludicrous. Um, so, but, but I, I did feel I, you know, and yeah, I, I've, I've spent zero minutes, zero days, zero hours, zero seconds as a woman. So, you know, uh, take that, take from it what you will. But I felt like I thought that this film did a great job of, of just kind of saying like these matter of fact things um, that her and her friend were incredible pilots, but they couldn't be combat pilots because they were women. And, you know, they didn't go deep into that. That's just how it is. So they just dealt with it. Um, and they knew that they, you know, they were uh, secure enough in themselves that they knew that they were good enough pilots to compete with with everyone else, with the men. They just weren't allowed to. And the the fact that Jude Law continued to tell her that she was she was essentially not as strong or not as smart as not as powerful as as he was and and all the power that she does have was was granted to her by him um so she was you know so he put her in a place that was subservient and throughout throughout the entirety of the movie she, there was i i felt like there were these subtle overtones of of her being subservient to the men in in the world and that moment with with Jude Law where Jude Law is you know bursting with machismo and is saying you know stand up here and fight me like a man and she's like no you know what for cuz that's dumb and <laughs> and and you know and that's i felt like that was that moment um and and i i appreciated it for that I, I, I guess. A, the, oh, go ahead, Zach. The only thing I'll add is is I, I agree uh, with what Cicero said. I think 
what I wish there had been more of was just a sense of who, like what we got in that moment is here's who Carol is now. I wanted to know who Carol was before. Sure. Above and above and beyond, like she's a victim of institutional sexism and stuff like that, which is important. I'm glad that's in there. I just wanted more. Uh, sure. Uh, you know, and, and, uh, you know, but I, I, I have a feeling that this, this complaint will end up being academic in the long run because we know there's going to be sequels, number one. And beyond that, for all we know, Endgame is going to add an entirely different layer of texture. So, so, it, you know, this, this commentary, this conversation we're having right now is almost just like a little stick pin in time. Right, uh, right, right. <laughs> well, we did. If 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 debrief listeners do remember, we did uh, get together to discuss Infinity War a year correct. ago. So we may have to follow suit when Endgame comes out because it is coming in the off season of our subject show. That is correct. So we're going to need to talk about something. Might as well be the the biggest movie in history that is apparently yes. outpacing its predecessor's ticket scale ticket sales rather by by scales. Like, Six to one or five to one, something right. like that. God. Yeah, it's, so, it's insane. So um, I, a friend of mine and I were just today speculating on, so Captain Marvel, um, uh, to, to point to that success, the Marvel Captain Marvel uh, has just surpassed $1 billion in ticket sales. Right. Um, so congratulations to, the, to everyone in that team. But uh we were speculating at how many billions with an S and a B, a B and an S, um, uh, Endgame will accumulate over the course of of its run uh, in the theaters. And my question is, will it surpass, will it be the top grossing film of all time, even adjusted for inflation? That's a All question. I know is that I'm rooting for it to topple what? Avatar. What that's it. The, that's it. Is that the top grossing? No, the, yeah. the top. No, the, no, no. Adjusted for oh, inflation no. is Gone with the Wind. You think it's going to do better than Gone with the Wind? <laughs> if any movie could, though, it's probably Endgame. Maybe. Yeah. Like unlike virtually every other franchise under the sun. I mean, remember when people were speculating how many billions with an S that the last Jedi would do, even in right. comparison to the force awakens and that right. didn't end up happening. But unlike that, it seems like Avengers has more momentum in that regard, especially if the, the pre-sales are any indication. Top five, top five so, adjusted for inflation, gone with the wind episode four sound of music, ET and Titanic. Avatar is 15th on the list, but uh, so to be number one, adjusted for inflation, it would have to surpass 1,854,769 and Oh, I mean, $1,854,769,700. So $1.9 billion. And that's domestic, uh, which is a hell of a tall. No, that's worldwide. No, that's- no, because glo- worldwide, I'm, I'm pretty sure that Force Awakens top two. Oh, oh then it's, it's yeah, then it's domestic. Okay. So I'm pretty sure it would have to be. De- well, either way, this has been the Marvel <laughs> right universe. Right. Uh, right. 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 You know what? You know what this. You know what this honestly just makes it just makes me resentful that no one appreciates Star Trek nearly as much as sure. as this stuff. I'm still bitter about it. Star Trek should be a billion dollar 
franchise, but it never will be. And I've made peace with that. But hey, you know, that's just the camp that I'm in. I, I don't think Endgame will beat Gauntlet. Okay. All right. I'm okay. just going to say that. Throwing down the gauntlet. Throwing down the gauntlet. We will read. We will reconvene at a later date to discuss this further in a more dedicated Marvel episode of Discovery Debrief. But, I mean, as you guys might know, we have quite a lot to talk about here. Uh, So I know I've been saying this a lot lately, but since we have a lot to talk about, we're foregoing our discussion of franchise news in order to maximize the time to talk about Discovery episodes. So without further ado, let's begin our discussion of Season 2, Episode 11, Perpetual Infinity. So as before, here's a quick and dirty recap of the episode that misses a lot of the detail, but it'll be a quick refresher on what happened at kind of a high level since it's been a couple weeks since any of us have seen this episode. We begin in the past, approximately 20 years ago, when the Burnham's laboratory is attacked by Klingons. Michael's mother donned the time travel suit to go back in time an hour and warn them of the attack. She instead arrived 950 years in the future to find all sentient life destroyed by control. Tethering herself to a nearby planet, Dr. Burnham made over 840 attempts to change the future, including moving humans to her planet Terralysium, to test how she can change history. Trying to stop control from gaining the sphere's data, Dr. Burnham was responsible for it crossing paths with the Discovery. Now the Discovery crew plans to upload the data into the suit and send it into the future where control cannot access it while keeping Dr. Burnham in the present, but a control-possessed Leland intercepts their download. Giorgio and Tyler confront Leland, with Tyler gravely injured but able to warn Discovery. The crew is forced to cut the transmission short and release Dr. Burnham back into the future with the suit now damaged. Control Leland escapes with half the sphere data. So first things first, what did you guys think of this episode overall? Zachy, how did this one uh, strike you? Start us off. Uh, you know, it's, it, I, it does start to feel like we're winding you know the 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 momentum is building towards sort of something culminative and so i i appreciated that i you know i i'm still getting used to star trek being so completely serialized you know that's like a new thing yeah uh, especially like in these in, in again in these sort of uh, these wind-up episodes you know it ends it's very it's like walking dead back when i used to watch walking dead when it would end and you'd be like oh no you know <laughs> Uh, I, I like all the pieces that are, that are being put in place. I'm curious, you know, I guess that's, that's, that's my reaction. Curious because some, so much stuff happening and, you know, you, you don't really know how to judge this one episode, uh, fully until the wind up and then you get to be like, oh, okay, these were, these are the threads that are paid off. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's. A fair characterization. Cicero, uh, I, what did you I make enjoyed of this it one? a lot. I, I really enjoyed uh, Burnham getting a chance to um, get to know her mother, right? Like it, it just mm-hmm. going through those logs and, and kind of understanding her journey and, and, and understanding that uh, the mother that she thought was gone was gone, but the entire time she was trying to make her way back. And having a sense of that and, and trying to kind of process all of that in the middle of the crisis was, was, uh, was something that I really, really enjoyed. Excellent. Uh, 
Rachel? I think of the four that we are discussing this week, this one is my least favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was still good and well-constructed. Um, there's just It just didn't, you know, light a fire <laughs> in my soul. Right. <laughs> sure. Yeah, and I tend to agree. Um, this one... compared with a lot of the other episodes that we absorbed this season, I mean, it was, it was a good episode and I'm glad that I saw it, but it felt like it was sort of biting the time to something else, to some kind of crescendo. Uh, You know, Zachy alluded to the fact that it seems like it's building to something. And I think we got to see one of the things that it was building to in the next episode. But um, this one, you know, coming off of the revelation of the red angel and sort of sandwiched between that and some of the crazier things that happen in the next episode. This one just feels a little bit middling, but Discovery middling in season two is still far from bad. I would not call this a bad episode by any stretch of the imagination, but um, it just seemed like, yeah, it it forwarded the plot a little bit. I think its runtime was a couple of minutes shorter too, which I thought was interesting. But uh yeah, I, I, it it was it was fine, and there's still a fair amount of stuff that happened in it that uh, that warrants conversation. Uh, speaking of which, um, I think one of the most prominent character arc relationships to start with is this newly burgeoning relationship that we saw between Leland and Control, because for all intents and purposes, they've united into one after the events of this episode, and in many ways it sort of seemed like Leland has embodied everything both beneficial and dangerous about section 31 from what we've seen from him thus far in the season. But now he's serving as a subservient vessel for this AI trying to bring its vision of galactic subjugation into reality. A lot of people have been making Borg comparisons to the way that control kind of assimilated Leland's body, but I think any direct board connections are a bit far-fetched, but what do you guys think of the way that Control is trying to assert itself? How effective do you think it'll be by taking over Leland? And what do you guys think that Leland's role could be in the remainder of the season if he has one at all? Well, I I think that it's been effective uh, in terms of uh, taking over Leland and, you know, Leland's role as um kind of de facto head of section 31 the talking head um of at least what we what we know to be section 31 um is puts makes immediately makes leland under control sorry the pun of control um makes him a a, a viable incredible threat to uh to everything that's going on mm-hmm. and uh, I think, I think what we're going to see, and you know, part of part of the as we're building to the crescendo, I think part of the crescendo is going to be Leland kind of escaping. Um, you know, uh, Mister was that Mister Big or uh, from 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 uh, Miss uh, Doctor Claw, Doctor Claw style from Inspector Gadget, and and that's going going to lead into our. Um, Section Thirty One show where they, Giorgio and and Tyler and the rest of the crew of Section Thirty One, like their uh kind of big bad will be control and and uh, trying to thwart thwart everything that these that they are trying to do. Um, I've also seen the 
uh, board comparisons online. Um, but I didn't, I didn't think much. I didn't put much stock into that. Yeah. Well, very well said, Rachel Leland in control. What do you think about how all this stuff shapes up? Well, I, I got the board comparison right away. He's infected by <laughs> nano bots. Yeah. Which is like exactly what the Borg used to assimilate. And the writers know, right. knowing what they know, that has to be intentional, right? So you think that there is some kind of direct thematic I don't, connection? The thematic connection, I don't think that there's going to be like a canonical connection. Okay. Um, but I could be wrong. But I think that um, this and what happens in the next episode, I think think that they are at least drawing heavy uh inspiration from the pork mm -hmm. okay i think that's that's a fair characterization uh zaki what do you think of that yeah uh, rachel echoed a lot of my thoughts about the writers like no, I mean, you put something like this in there, you're going to draw a board comparison, so they did it very deliberately um I feel like there's going to be some kind of tie in. I don't think it's going to be like, oh, this is where the Borg started. But I, I feel like why, why do it otherwise? Like it, the Borg are not some one shot, you know, uh, greebly pasted on their forehead villain from like, you know, some episode. I mean, the Borg are the Borg and that people know what the Borg's characteristics are. So there's something there, I think. Uh, that'll be some kind of tie. And I feel like it'll be oblique. It's again, I don't think it's, it's an origin, but it's something. Um, I also feel like this, this thing with control is going to lead us towards something that allows us to reconcile where section 31 is at in this period in the chronology versus where it's at by the 24th century, where no one has even heard of section 31. Right. Yeah, and I think so, that that's that's a very fair thing to say. What do you think? Since we didn't get to ask you about this in the last episode, what do you think of Control shaping up to be the primary antagonist of the season overall? I, well, I mean, it's like I said earlier. I, I'm, I you kind of have to wait to see the season wrap up to be like, well, did it pay off uh, in in a way that makes sense? I'm 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 intrigued. I mm -hmm. I'm, I'm I, I it was a nice like twist you know i didn't i didn't see the the it, things sort of swerving in that direction so that 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 has me intrigued uh and and again i'm i'm willing to stake out that part of the hill that says that this has something to do with the borg mm -hmm. i don't know what that thing will be but i i feel like that's something that that we're going to end up building towards in some way i mean if anything the the immediate reaction that i had particularly when it took control of leland's body was that it answers why the Borg's veins are black, you know, because mm -hmm. that wasn't ever some, it was always just like a makeup choice. Right. But now we actually get to see, Oh no, the, the blood vessels themselves are actually thick enough with nanites that it actually right. blackens the veins on the outside. And I was like, Oh, that's kind of cool. You know, they could kind of explain that. I, I struggle with, drawing a direct line i mean zaki i think you make an excellent point when you say that this has to be deliberate because of the imagery that was employed that is very right. borg like rachel made that connection too right after we saw the episode and i just uh, it's hard for me to draw that direct line just because of everything that we 
think we know at this stage about the Borg, not only the fact that they're on an, they're in an entirely other section of the galaxy, but I don't, maybe, you know what, you know what it might be? Maybe I just can't get over the fact because in my brain, I'm so subscribed to the notion of the Borg being tied to V'ger. And if something erases mm-hmm. that, I just can't deal with it. Maybe that's <laughs> it. It's like my own, my, my fanboy embeddedness. Your head cannon. My head cannon is way. so strong. I mean, it's such a strong connection though. But, but uh, I mean, well, that, that's like from the Shatner books, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, again, that's not to say necessarily that this is like their their beginnings, right? Because I, I think canonically they go back much further into the past, right? I mean, it's that's it the way sense. it's always been characterized that they were they they were a society not too dissimilar from regular societies that we know that just yeah. kind of slowly started embracing technology before it ended up taking over. Completely. Okay, let, let me let me say this: if it turns out that some Starfleet thing ends up causing the Borg. I call foul on that. I think that's stupid. I hope they don't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I do feel that whatever they're doing right now with control is deliberately meant to evoke the Borg, and they wouldn't be evoking the Borg unless there was some game plan. That's that's my thought. And I think that's a very fair perspective to take. And I think you're probably you you and Rachel both are probably totally right in that regard because. These writers have proven over and over again that they know all of the nooks and crannies of the world that they're occupying. And I would have a hard time thinking that they wouldn't be evoking that if they weren't trying to do it on purpose. So, yeah, very well said. Well, let's uh, let's move on to the next relationship. And I think we definitely have to touch on the newly developed dynamic between Dr. Gabrielle Burnham and her daughter, Michael. Um it was a bit harsh seeing Dr. Burnham almost completely dismiss her daughter, especially when she talks about it, it was such a, it was such a weird scene to watch because it was really uncomfortable, at least for me, but she talks about being desensitized to the image of watching her daughter die because she's already seen it so much. So she's already effectively let go of Michael because she's had to watch that so much. And Michael's clearly shaken by the fact that she's even able to speak to her mom again. And even in spite of the way that Gabrielle is trying to separate herself from Michael, the writing still makes clear how much she does actually love her daughter. Uh, So now that we get to see Gabrielle more clearly, what do you make of the way that she comes across here? Did you find the reunion between mother and daughter to be powerful while you were watching this one? Rachel. I think I agree with you. I think I found it sort of strange and odd that she wasn't having this sort of emotional reunion with her because she had effectively like let her go in her mind. I don't know. That just, it was so narratively unsatisfying for me. Oh, okay. Um, But I guess it makes sense. Like she's, you know, she's living a bajillion years in the future, everybody else is like, she says, I think something to Pike about like, Hey, you're a ghost to mm-hmm. me. Yeah. This is all already happened. And so none of this is sort of real to her. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I, I got as explanation for that. Um, for her behavior. I just, I don't know. I didn't buy it. I guess mm-hmm. I felt like if you got a chance to talk to your daughter, even if, you'd already watched her die so many times. I think 
you would still want to talk to her. I don't know. Unless it was too painful because mm-hmm. she knows she's going to have to watch her die again. I don't know. I mean, at the beginning, when Michael walks up to her, like I, I think the first thing she just says is no. Like Yeah, yeah. Which which no, sounds too painful, right? Yeah, right. like there's something there. Yeah, it's just <laughs> thou doth protest too much. <laughs> well, no, I think she's just like shutting it down, right? She's like, right. no, 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 no. Like I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this because I can't do this. Mm-hmm. Um, but right, that was just really unsatisfying for me because I guess what I wanted was them to be like, <laughs> oh, I love you. <laughs> Good. Zachy, what do you think about uh, the reunion between mother and daughter here? Uh, yeah, I, I agree with Rachel. It it kind of, it, it didn't do much of anything for me. Uh, and, and maybe that, like maybe those expectations not being met is itself what the intention was. Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels, the, the relationship feels a little bit pregnant. Like there needs to be some resolution down the line. Sure. Um, but yeah, it's kind of like so much. It's like, okay, well, let's just wait and see. Yeah. And, um, since we didn't get to ask you about this last time either, what did you make of the revelation of the red angels identity in this regard? You know, I, initially I was like, come on, you know, like it, it feels very like it, it, I, initially I was like, oh, it makes the universe feel small. Uh, but then with you know, a little bit of distance, I was like, well, it, it, what it actually does is makes Burnham feel more integral to everything that's happening. Right. And it does, um, it, it does explain why, why she is our main character in this series. Uh, the other thought that I had was, I wonder if, you know, all the timey wimey business is potentially seeding a way to explain, uh, why we never heard of Michael, mm-hmm. um, and anything before. Yeah, that's that's possible. The um, the theory that I shared in the last episode was that Burnham might not survive by the time Captain Kirk takes command of the Enterprise. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, mean, I, I like yours better. Well, it, it certainly would be, but I like yours better because I don't like when characters I like die. But sure. uh, you know, we'll 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 see what happens. Yeah. Cicero, Gabriel, Burnham, and Michael. What did you make of um, this interaction? I I agree with the rest of the panel um, that it it didn't make a lot of narrative sense, uh, especially since before before they confronted or before Burnham uh, or Michael confronted uh, her mother, she spent all of this time listening to her mother in in these eight hundred different log entries talk about in every single one mm-hmm. that she was coming back to them. That she was coming back to get her little girl. That she was coming back, and and you know, and the thing that we know is, you know, the thing that we knew was that the Red Angel always showed up when Burnham was at the precipice of death, and she would do whatever she could to sure. save her. And then once we find out that it's her mom, then okay, that all makes sense. That she's out there saving her daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, that she can't, you know, she can't really stay with. But uh, so now that she's finally has an opportunity to sit and talk to her, she pushes her away and, and, you know, she kind of dismisses her when Michael already knows that she has deep, uh, you know, unabiding uh, affection for, for her. 
Um, you know, Michael knows her mom has affection for her. Michael knows that she is that her mom is coming at every moment of of you know the chance that she could die to come and save her. But then her mother's going to pretend like she doesn't want to have any, anything to do with her at that particular moment. Like I, I it just it didn't fly with me. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, and I can see that. Uh, the The entire tenor of their conversation, I felt a little bit numb to it. And I think that reaction on my part was dictated by Dr. Burnham trying to drive a wedge of distance between them. And I'm not sure if that was the intended response. Of course, once again, Sonequa Martin-Green gave a singularly powerful performance. I don't know how she <laughs> does that thing with her eyes. Uh, but she does it, and she does it really well. So, what thing, Chris? Like, just like the crying. Like, she can have the tear. Like, yes, her eyes big, get super big, and the tears just start streaming down her face. And it every single time she does that, it really connects with me. But there was something about Dr. Burnham trying to be disconnected from that reaction to Michael that gave it kind of a lopsided presentation in my right. mind. Yeah. And, and that, I guess that the way that you guys put it in saying that it isn't exactly narratively satisfying, I guess I feel that way too. I mean, I didn't, that wasn't the immediate feeling that jumped out at me when I was watching it, but I guess it kind of did feel that way in the end, but yeah, I, I also think that there is a, a pregnancy to this, that this isn't completely resolved yet, and maybe we haven't seen the last of Dr. Burnham, and I kind of hope not. But uh, either way, yeah, it was just very strange. It was a very strange kind of reunion, especially with what you mentioned, Cicero, with all of the things that Dr. Burnham related wanting to get back to at some point. There was a right. there was an incongruity, let's say. But there's also... A really, we're going to stay in the theme of mothers here because there's a really rich character interaction between Gabrielle Burnham and Philippa Giorgio, who are effectively two of Michael's mothers. Uh, Gabrielle even tells Giorgio that she saw the former emperor sacrifice herself for her daughter in some future. And Giorgio responded kind of flippantly to that, thinking, I think you are confusing me with my sentimental prime universe counterpart. And Dr. Burnham just basically looks her straight in the eye and says, I know who I'm talking to and I know exactly what you're capable of. But, um, but there's more truthfulness that comes with the things that Dr. Burnham says because uh, she holds Pike's future over his head that, you know, you don't want to know what, what's coming for you. And we we obviously know that to be the truth, but um, Gabrielle asks Giorgio to promise to keep Michael safe. Uh, And again, since there's a credibility added, since she knows what Pike's future is, does this new piece of information from Dr. Burnham confirm any of what you guys might've suspected about Emperor Giorgio? Were you surprised? What did you think of this meeting of the mothers as it was happening? Uh, You know, I mean, if anyone's been listening to to my commentary about Giorgio and her relationship with Burnham, um, this this of course came at, as no surprise to me. Um, you know, this is as mm-hmm. as I've consistently said. Even in the mirror universe, you could see um, the the semblance of matronly love and affection 
um, you know, obviously put through a, a filter that may be a little bit foreign to, to us humans, but, but Terran, Terran love is not all that dissimilar to human love. Um, and, and as we kind of talked about in the last episode, I think that, uh, Giorgio's, uh, the, the, because of the, uh, the lack of need to continue to be the emperor, you know, emperor Philip Giorgio Augustus, um, here in, in the, in the prime universe, some of that sentimentality has, has risen further uh closer to the surface than i think uh emperor jojo would would like and and is probably necessarily comfortable with but but she is embracing it because if there is anything that she loves in the prime universe um it is it is michael burnham mm -hmm. excellent zaki as the resident uh mirror universe I don't want to, I don't think you're a hater, but maybe you've just seen enough of the mirror universe and the I fact that, th that this thread is, is continuing. I, I think you expressed a little bit of disappointment when we started to get an idea that Giorgio was going to stick around, but what do you make of this kind of a development that she's potentially willing to sacrifice her life for Michael in some undetermined way? And uh, how did you just take in this, this meeting of the mothers, so to speak? You know, I mean, to to some extent, you sort you see the pieces moving uh, behind the curtain, right? So we know that they're working towards a Section Thirty One show with uh, Captain Giorgio as uh, or Emperor Giorgio as some kind of protagonist, if not the lead, and and so that's what they're seeding, right? I mean, th this has to be a character who uh, demonstrates empathy and loyalty and and just you know basic humanity. Otherwise, the question will be, well, why, sh why should I be interested in this show? And and obviously, the fact that Section 31 is already so sketchy, uh, Giorgio needs to be a character who is slightly less, uh, you know... Uh, uh, Scummy? Not, not, yeah, you know, I was, I was going to say evil, but Section 31 is not evil, but they're, they're more Machiavellian, right? So that's kind of an interesting dance, right? Like... Uh, too much uh, Machiavellian will be a turnoff, and yet that's that's the reason Section Thirty One even exists. So hey, let's bring in this mirror universe character and rehabilitate them, uh, so that we are okay with Section Thirty One. I mean, you gotta appreciate right. the, right. the long game <laughs> that they're playing, I guess. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see that. Rachel, the meeting of the mothers, how did you take that in in the moment? And uh, what do you think this means for the future of Emperor Giorgio? I think we pretty well covered it in the last episode. She's She loved Michael, even though she's... She loved her. <laughs> she loved her. Um, what do I think for the future? I, yeah, I mean, I agree with Zaki. I think that it's a... You know, sets her up as uh, an actual character rather than just sort of like a mustache twirling evil lady, mm -hmm. um, such that she can actually carry her own show. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is what they're going for. Yeah. Yeah. I'm inclined to agree with you guys. I mean, um, honestly, and, you know, maybe this is where some of the dissatisfaction came from on your part, Zachy, but I've never really gotten this outright evil from emperor Giorgio, even when she was still on the throne 
you mm. know. Um, right, she's she eating Kelpians. Saru. I mean, that, <laughs> yeah, that was pretty bad, but we were also kind of removed from it, you know. And she still demonstrated in that moment uh, some kind of affinity to help Michael out, even when she realized that it wasn't her Michael. Uh, so. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think you guys are right. In order to be a character worth following into her own series, we need to be able to empathize with her to to a certain degree. But she also still clearly has that kind of badass countenance that you would think an emperor of a Terran empire would have. But yeah, I, I found this interaction to be really interesting, especially considering the credibility that Gabrielle Burnham demonstrated, particularly when she held Pike's future over his head. It's like, well, there must be something to this, which means that there's probably something more to Emperor Giorgio, and I'll be interested to see how that unfolds. Um, last major relationship that I want to talk about for this episode is between Michael and Spock, because it develops, at least I think, in a kind of substantive way here. We now see that Spock can act as a kind of reassuring figure for Michael, who at the end of the episode seemed to have given up hope for actually defeating Control. Then Spock ends the episode by saying to Michael, and this is a direct quote, respectfully, Dr. Burnham was incorrect. Now does matter. What happened before no longer exists. What will happen next has not yet been written. We have only now. That is our greatest advantage. What we do now in this moment has the power to determine the future, instinct and logic together. That is how we will defeat control in the battle to come. We will find a way. All of history can change with our next move. And then he set up a tridimensional chessboard and then the siblings played chess. Uh, what do you guys think of the way that Spock and Michael have sort of come back around on each other? And Zachy, what do you make of the fact that this relationship has diverged from the antagonistic tenor that we saw in previous episodes. Why don't you start us off? Well, I mean, we knew it had to end up back here, right? I mean, it, you know, you, you can't have if if Spock dislikes Michael, then that's where we're going to be. I mean, it, you 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 know, the the laws of storytelling say that. Well, we start with them having this, you know, it's, right. it's the Riggs and Murtaugh rule, you know, like you. <laughs> start with them over here and then we go on this journey with them and they end up over there so so we've always known this is where we're going to end up so it's been nice to to sort of watch what we know needs to happen uh, be happening mm-hmm. like sort of as goes ohio so goes the nation and as goes spock so goes the star trek audience right pretty much you know yeah, i can see that yeah Zachy, thank you. <laughs> Rachel. <laughs> he just looks directly in my eyes and says, Zachy. We're live, folks. I don't have time to edit this, so th- this is all you're getting. Rachel, what do you make of the development between Michael and Spock at the end of this episode? Um, I really liked it. I, I felt personally reassured by Spock's little monologue there. Um, he is Spock. Yeah, I know. But when Spock's telling you, like, hey, it's going to be okay. We're going to figure this out. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it is going to be okay. Yeah. Like, I'm pretty upset at the fact that the time-traveling person <laughs> seems to have just vanished into the ether. Uh, I don't know what we're going to do next. So he's like, no, no, we're going to do this. Spock has okay. a pretty good track record of reliability when it comes to that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's also good. It's also, you know, applicable to every day, right? Mm-hmm. 
like, yeah, I'm going to figure this out. Yeah. Good. Well, I'm glad that <laughs> you Thank you, Spock. <laughs> yes. Spock 2020. Uh, Cicero, this relationship, what did you make of uh, of how this episode ended? But yeah, I mean, it was it was them. definitely heartwarming. Um, you know, again, as as Zachy kind of said, like, you know, these are these. Are, I mean, Spock is the number one. He's the guy that you love. Uh, if you if you've ever been a fan of Star Trek, he is he is probably the guy that you have the most affinity for. Um, but over the last you know almost two years. Uh, we've grown uh, a you know a a certain level of affection for his his stepsister um and and to know that the two of them were at odds definitely you know uh, makes you conflicted as as a fan and to see them come together uh is is definitely something that is uh you know warms the heart and and gives you gives you a sense of of joy inside so um, that's great. The only thing that it does for me, kind of like what you said in the last episode, uh, Chris, which is at some point they separate and Spock never mentions her again. What the hell happened? Um, and you know, we've got we've got uh as of right this second, three episodes left, but uh in reality only two episodes left, uh, to figure out what that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I hope that um, because of Michael's connection to one of the most important families, to say nothing of the fact that she's got a connection to one of the most important characters in the entire franchise, particularly in this time period, I certainly hope that, you know, season two does not prove to be the last time that we see Spock uh, or Captain Pike for that matter. Um, I mean, you guys remember a year ago. <laughs> right, yeah. Hey, I'd be into it. But I mean, a year ago, I think there was one episode where I brought up, well, what's the likelihood we're going to see a Constitution-class ship? And one of you guys, I can't remember which one, said, well, we'll, we'll probably see a Constitution-class right, ship, but it's right. not going to be the Enterprise. Are you kidding me? That sounds like we're something else. not going to see the Enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> Well, either way, little did we know that, uh, and I think as Zachy has said before, that this show is going to bear hug the continuity as much as it has. Um, mm. So the fact that she has become so embedded in the in the history of, of Spock and of Sarek, something is going to have to happen. They can't just leave this hanging. And I'm pretty confident that they won't. Um, but it does it does just continue to... No, I don't want to say exacerbate because there aren't really any problems that are created with this. The absence of Michael from yeah. what we've seen before is not stepping on anything. Uh, so what I always say, Chris, is how many episodes of Star Trek uh, mentioned George Samuel Kirk, Kirk's brother? Yeah, true. How many episodes mentioned Cybok? Too many. you know i mean it's it's one of those things where it's like uh, i you know whenever people complain about continuity inserts i'm always like uh, 
you know, it's it's like the 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 Zindi uh, right. conflict in season three of Enterprise. You're right. like, well, they never mentioned it in the other series. I'm like, okay, how many how many times right. do you talk about like nine eleven in any given day? You know, and that was only fifteen years ago. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, on a more basic level, why wasn't Sarah get Spock's almost wedding? Yeah. I mean, well, I've kind of wondered that. So, kind of, kind of on that subject, but but a, l- a little bit of uh, derailing of, of such is, what does it say about Burnham's character that she has three now three prominent mother figures in her in her life, um, two people that she has called mother at one point or another, and a third she effectively could without missing a beat. Uh, in in Giorgio, um, mm-hmm. is like I don't. I mean, is that does that mean anything? Has has have uh, any of you guys ever uh, like have you taken the time to think about what that could mean or what it does mean or does it mean anything to you, Zachy? I'll start with you. Uh, I mean, I, I appreciate the fact that for once we're focusing on mommy issues as opposed sure. to the usual trope of daddy issues. <laughs> so. That you know, just there's there's novelty there, which I can I can uh, co-sign. Uh, you know? Yeah, Chris, what do you, what do you think about that? Well, now I just want to see Amanda, uh, Gabrielle, and Giorgio sit around a table and discuss their motherly <laughs> right. philosophies for an hour, because uh, I think that w- that could be an oh, explosive yeah. combination. But uh, no, I mean, I'm in, I'm inclined to agree with Zachy. I mean, it. I'm, you know, honestly, just as a as a longtime TOS fan, and as someone who always appreciated the both the the prime characterization and honestly the Kelvin characterization of Amanda Grayson, yes. I'm glad that she's getting more time uh, because I think that there is a really interesting story to tell there concerning uh, the limitations that she feels as a mother who can relate to a child on human terms and Michael coming into the mix only enriches that sort of philosophical disconnect that we understood her to have before. Uh, What that means for Michael and the larger fabric, I'm not sure. Uh, But honestly, that kind of just brings to bear and kind of reinforces, at least in my own mind, the fact that Maybe we won't be seeing Michael in 10 years when the Enterprise changes hands. I mean, I have a hard time, and I certainly hope it's not like a Mephisto one more day situation where, you know, a devil snaps his fingers and all of a sudden Peter and Mary Jane aren't married anymore. That's a, right. <laughs> one that I but, got. Uh, Thank you very much, Chris. Uh, yeah. Not a problem. But uh, yeah, I mean, this the show is going to have to address uh, at some point Michael's lack of presence, and I'm confident it will, considering what we've uh, seen. So, so Rachel, far from the show. have you thought about? I just I I don't think that I think I guess I agree with Zachy in that if a male character had three sort of fathery type figures in his life, I don't think it would. Be completely outside of the realm of hmm. sure. odd okay. things to see, uh, right? That's that's perfectly normal. So you know, it, that's a relationship that we 
want to explore is our um, relationship with older older parental parental figures or mm-hmm. mentors. Um, and since Michael's a woman, she's, you know, her relationships are maybe more intense with the, the women in her life. So, yeah. All right. Great. Well, that's all I've got for, uh, for perpetual infinity. So why don't we move along to our discussion for episode 12 of season two through the Valley of shadows. Once again, a quick and dirty recap. A new signal appears over Borith, a place sacred to Klingons, where a Klingon monastery is located and where monks guard time crystals. Tyler and Laurel sent their infant son son there to be raised by the monks just a few months earlier. Pike goes to the monastery to try and retrieve a time crystal and finds the son is now a fully grown adult named Tanavik. Tanavik explains that life on Borth is affected by the crystals and that if Pike takes one, he will not be able to change the future that it shows him. Pike sees a future where he is severely disabled in an accident, but chooses to take the crystal to serve the greater good. Meanwhile, Burnham and Spock investigate a Section 31 ship that had checked in 10 minutes later than usual and find all of the crew dead except for one, an old colleague of Burnham's from aboard the Shenzhou who has been possessed by control and attempts to take over Burnham. Spock is able to stop control and they escape back to Discovery, but the Section 31 fleet is on its way. Pike decides to evacuate the crew to the Enterprise and then initiate a self-destruct on Discovery to destroy the sphere data. So this one, unlike the last one, uh, you know, I felt like the last one was middling a little bit and this one, I had no similar problem, at least in my mind. But what was this like for you guys overall? Was this emotional? Does this, how does this play in with the rest of the season? uh, So this one, I, you know, I, I said in the, in our previous episode that I was, a little uh, disappointed overall uh, with the Arium episode. Um, I kind of felt similarly to uh, you and uh, you, Chris, and, and you, Rachel, uh, with regards to the episode that we previously spoke about. Um, but this episode, uh, like like you said, Chris, holy crap! It just balls to the wall. Uh, you know, android fight. Um, all sorts of crazy stuff was going on. Uh, there, I mean, there were so many different relationships that, that, uh, that were mentioned. Uh, you know, we talked about Pike and his, his almost like need to, you know, because of his survivor guilt to, to go out and go on these away missions where he knows his mortality is, is at stake. Um, Burnham, uh, finding out the revelation that, that Tyler has a kid, um, dogs and cats sleeping together, mass hysteria. I mean, it was it was just just <laughs> crazy, man. I, I loved I loved this episode. All right, excellent. Oh boy, yeah, this one was eventful. Zachy, what did you think of this episode overall? Yeah, I think this is one of the strongest uh, installments we've had this season. I, and and what what I've tended to notice is that whenever there is like a heavy Pike focus, uh, I'm just that much more dialed in. I just, I mean, 
I'm in awe of how well they've constructed this character and, and, uh, um, the depth that they've added to, to him considering that, uh, you know, he, he has, he, he, before this show, he was in essence a blank slate. Like we knew how his story ends and we knew one adventure that he had. And so there, there was a lot of room there to really grow out while embracing the canon. And, you know, reflexively you're like, Oh, like we know like two things about Pike and we're just going to, those are the things we're going to, we're going to show you, you know, and they, they proved in the, the Telosian one a couple weeks ago that like, that there's a way to do it and not make it feel uh, like fan service. And then here again, it's, it's uh, not only one of the strongest uh, uh, acting performances from Anson Mount. I mean, I think it's just in, in one moment he becomes like the, greatest starfleet captain of all time you know yeah yeah it's hard to disagree with that rachel what did you think of this one overall i really like this one um it seemed so much shorter than it was yeah when it ended i was like oh but (laughs) what (laughs) that time just flew by for me which is a fun feeling Mm -hmm. yeah and i'm inclined to agree i mean um this one, you know, I already had a, a desire for a, a, a long time to see more from from Captain Pike, and before this series was announced, that just never seemed like it would ever be a possibility. And uh, now we've had just about a full season of seeing some really truly compelling and legitimate extensions of that guy that we were introduced to back in 1964. And uh, this episode brings almost an entirely new perspective on the integrity and the just the countenance of the man, which is even, I think, more enriched by who the captain was last season. You know, it's it's a hard from from one hard swing, one direction we're getting uh, an entirely other hard swing in the other, you know, where not only is, is Pike an effective commanding officer, but he's also like Admiral Cornwell said, the best of Starfleet. Uh, and, and we see that on full display in this episode in particular. So, I mean, honestly, the whole time crystal thing made me roll my eyes, particularly earlier in the season, even back at, in the episode where, uh, where Harry Mudd was using one to, to manipulate time around the show. I was like, Time Crystal, God, that's a hokey device. Couldn't they have come up with a better name? What the hell is this? This is stupid. And then it provides moments like the ones we see in this episode. And I'm just forced to shut up and acknowledge that that seemingly hokey device gives us really great insight into a character who's proven to be endlessly compelling over the course of the season. So I was a big fan of this episode. Um, but let's move on to some explored character dynamics. So, um, we get a bit more forward momentum in seeing the relationship between Tyler and Laurel. There's still clearly some bitterness toward the former Voke on the part of the chancellor, but they're still very much bonded over the fact that they have a son. What do you think the future could spell for these two? How do you think this episode's interaction with the Klingon empire at large played out? Rachel? I thought it was crazy to see grown up baby Baby Volk. Tenavik, yeah. Tenavik. Volk Jr., right. <laughs> Volk Jr. 
once again, once again, my hopes that this albino is the albino in Deep Space Nine have been dashed. <laughs> and I am so sad. Well, maybe maybe it's Tenavik's son. I mean, who knows? It could keep going. Ten- but Tenavik lives in like a time bubble. I don't think any. Maybe, I don't think it connects at all. <laughs> Potentially not. Oh uh, yeah, I, I can see that. Cicero, what did you think of the of the Klingon elements of this episode? And, and Tyler and I Lorel's didn't realize how much I missed the Klingons uh, of Discovery until really? this episode. Okay. Um, because, well, first off, it felt it seemed like Lorel had put on weight. I know that's taboo to say. Um, but it seemed like the the prosthetics made her face fuller, um, which which I, I may have been like an allegory or um, you know a metaphor for the the weight that she is on her shoulders as a result of being the chancellor of of the the Klingon Empire. Um, but you know, or maybe that was just me. I don't know. Um, but uh, like, I love that interaction. I love the fact that that. Uh, even though they haven't fully reconciled, or at least Laurel hasn't fully reconciled that she is in love with the person that is inside of Tyler, but knows that Tyler is not that person. And she, I mean, she literally says that, um, that she is able to also share a deep and caring affection for Volk Tyler, um, you know, Ash Volk. Because together they made their son, uh, and and they can have that. They can be adults and have that affection, um, and and that's where I cry. Bush Mahonky, as as shout out to Rich Hammond. That's his. That's his uh, his curse word. Um, <laughs> but uh, like because it's very rare to see exes who have kids react that way towards each other. Uh, as soon after their relationship ends as as theirs did so but like it was great to see it was it was definitely uh heartfelt to see that and and also uh, i want to give a shout out again i did this last episode i want to do it again um these makeup teams are spectacular because because uh as as uh anson mount said in his interview uh, in uh, the start, the, like their after Trek show, uh, I think Zachy knows the name because he he shared it with us all. Um, but like uh, the ready room, yeah. So the ready the, room, the fact that uh, Volk Junior was able to be stoic but also be menacing at the same time, and you were able to feel that emotion through the prosthetics, and and that Laurel, the Chancellor, was able to again give you those feelings not only with her words but her facial expressions and and you know the the emotion that she was that was radiating off of her um that's that's an incredible job by the makeup artist and and also equally incredible job by the actors very well said Zachy in season 1 you were kind of critical of the uh the klingon uh not the plot, I guess, but some sometimes an overbearing presence by the Klingons. So when they kind of return to prominence here, what did you think, and what did you what do you think of the forward momentum and the relationship between Tyler and Laurel? 
yeah, you know, I think Klingons work best as sort of the spice in the stew. So yeah, when when uh, season one leaned so heavily on them, and it was a lot of ho 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 ho. Oh geez, yeah, this is rough. Uh, so you know, I, I don't mind uh, a, a little bit of it as 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 character, and I think I think you know the fact that uh, it it's an opportunity for for Tyler to get you know deepened as a character, and one presumes he will have a presence in that aforementioned Section Thirty One show. I think that's all good, and I think Shazad Latif, by the way, has been doing really good stuff this season. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like uh, the, the guy's got presence, you know. So, so I'm 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 glad that um, there is that opportunity to to deepen his character, and you know, the Klingon stuff is fine. I I actually I forgot that that uh, Borat is like the temple from that TNG episode. Somebody pointed that out to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, right, rightful heir, and I was like, oh damn. I mean, that's what I'm saying. I I love the ways it's just like, yeah, we're we're gonna be super nerdy about our continuity, which makes it even more hilarious when you see people on on Twitter just like sniping constantly. Yeah, it's not real. It's not canon. Yeah, total total crap. Uh, yeah, I mean, clearly, like the, as soon as Boreth was mentioned, I was like, oh yeah. There's nudging Rachel and elbow and like oh you know, hey. it seems like if there were time crystals laying around Boreth, they all would have been a lo- lot less weirded out that Kales came back there. <laughs> Wouldn't they just be like he came out of a time crystal? Obviously, well, like instead no, of he, because he randomly pointed to a star and said, "Find me there" when he was dying, and that's when they decided to establish the monastery and there, there were time crystals yeah, he the didn't monastery. know there were, there were time he was on a whole other planet but uh yeah i mean i i i really enjoyed the the klingon elements of this one uh i'm wor- i honestly though i'm worried about laurel and her chancellorship because the fact that she's holding such a secret like this particularly when it comes to the fact that both uh you know tyler and her son are alive. I feel like that's going to come back and, and bite her and that it's going to open the empire up to some kind of sedition because clearly there's a change in affairs between the Klingon empire and the Federation by the time uh, it's captain Kirk in the, in, in the center seat of the enterprise and Kirk talks pretty openly about Klingon society being a military dictatorship and how, you know, they're always ready to, to fight and uh, so something's going to happen there. I don't think Laurel's going to be chancellor for much longer, but I certainly hope that she sticks around as a character because I find her to be very compelling. And I like seeing that she was on a D7 at, at the beginning of this episode. I thought that was cool. And Shazad Latif, yo, yeah, it was, it was really cool. And Shazad Latif has oh, one yeah. hell of a Klingon accent. I love the way that he says Kalis's name. You know, like it's just just a nice little touch that makes makes the world feel all the all the richer. But let's move along. So one of the coolest interactions in this episode, I think anyway, came between Jet Reno and Hugh Colbert because Reno noticed in the engineering lab that Stamets appears to be kind of dejected while working. So Reno takes it upon herself to try and intervene and see if she can provide some positive perspective between the uh, well, the difficult relationship that Colber and Stamets are experiencing at the moment. What did you guys think of the conversation between Reno and Colber? And do you think that it could help provide some help to both men, uh, especially now that um, 
you know, the way that Reno characterized her own experience with her own spouse and, and the, the kind of loss that she endured and the fact that she observes that, you know, Stamets and Colbert have another chance together. Cicero comes in, she strikes again. Um, you know, she's like an assassin. She's a sniper. She just comes in, she lays down the good, good stuff. And she just, you know, she murders, she murders everyone metaphorically with, with, with joy. <laughs> um, and she left, you know, and then she's gone and I've got a, a permanent smile on my face. Um, again, I think in, in, you know, in successive episodes, well, not successive episodes, but I guess, um, in a couple of episodes, two out of three episodes, Hugh Colbert has sat down with, with someone and received information that he wasn't necessarily expecting, but he definitely needed to hear. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I love in both cases, the first with Admiral Cornwell, uh, you know, I guess therapist and Admiral Cornwell, and then, and this time with, with Lieutenant Reno, um, just, you know, the first time was just kind of like, uh, you know, uh, you were seeking it out, but I think that I love the matter of factness of, of both, both of the sentiments that came from, from these two different people to him to help. It's, it's almost like he's matriculating back into life again. Um, and, and. Like, you know, he's, he's been reborn and he's, you know, he was starting college all over again and, and trying to figure himself out. And that's, you know, that's kind of what college is all about is this self-discovery. And, and these people have popped in and, and have really been, uh, professors to kind of, and, you know, mentor and guide him and drop these nuggets that he can, he can follow and use them to guide him towards his passions. So I, I really love, I, I hope to see. Uh, at least somewhat of the formation of that arc um, uh, at the, you know, at the, at the hardening of whatever that is by the end of the season. Sure. Very well said. Rachel, what did you make of this, uh, this interaction? I thought it was laying some breadcrumbs for something that's going to happen mm-hmm. later. I don't, I don't know. I, it, was, it was sweet. It was nice. It's uh, always good to see Tignataro. Mm-hmm. I really like her character. Um, and I just, just makes me really look forward to see what's going to happen between Colbert and Stamets. Mm-hmm. Zachy, what did you make of this when you uh, watched it in the episode? Well, I mean, there, there's the part of you that's like, well, we know we have to sort of end up at a place where they are back together. So, uh, you know, they're laying the breadcrumbs for that. I, I, I think more for me, what, what stood out is the fact that here you have, um, you know, a bunch of LGBT characters talking frankly about their same sex relationships and it's not a big deal. And, uh, it's kind of like, man, it, it took a while for Star Trek to get there, but that's nice, you know? Yeah. We're here now. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally agree. And I mean, just the, I loved how Reno comes in to relate her own experiences to much of what Stamets and Colbert are going through. She doesn't do it in like a, a way that talks down 
or that diminishes Colbert's own feelings or Stamets's for that matter, you know, because she very easily could have been bitter and just said, you don't, you understand the chance that you have now wake up, you son of a bitch. You know, she could have come in and felt that way, but that's not what she wanted to do. I mean, she's just, she tries to gently bring Colbert to that realization himself by expressing in, in rather gentle terms, you have another chance and you don't have to do anything with it, but you can. And that's something that's worth exploring. And I thought it was a beautiful sentiment and I was really, really taken with that moment as I was watching it. So I was very happy to see that, um, you know, that kind of counseling can come from a rather unexpected place because we've seen Reno be so blunt with her hilariously so, but we've seen her be so blunt and kind of disconnected. She's kind of like a Han Solo of, uh, of discovery in a way, because she's not like totally connected to, to the mythology. She, she has a little bit of a separate perspective, but there also comes with that an unexpected source of light. And I think that's what I really appreciated out of it. But, uh, well, last thing that we're going to talk about for this episode, and I think it's the big one, and I'm cheating a little bit because this isn't really a relationship, but it's the relationship between Pike and the future. Because not only do the time crystals allow us to see that Tyler and Laurel's fully grown son has become a guardian monk over the time crystals, but the crystals also provide Pike with an insight into what is inevitably coming for him. It's the fate that we're all so familiar with that we saw way back in the menagerie and when presented with the choice the choice we'd never had any at least i didn't have any indication that he would ever have he's presented with a choice to avoid that future but he chooses it he effectively sacrifices himself preemptively and works past his fear making peace with what will happen to him sometime in the next decade what do you guys think that this adds to Pike's story and how were you affected by this in the moment? Zachy, you had to have come away from that with, uh, let's say the feels, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, as soon as, as soon as he touches the crystal and we see the explosion go off, I knew what we were seeing, you know, right. it was the, the thing that we'd heard about. And, just, I mean, first of all, it's it's so cool uh, to see that you know uh, uh, visualized after after only being told about it. But you know, again, just just the the way the way Anson Mount plays the moment when he when it comes to face face to face with himself in the in that uh, wheelchair thingy, uh, it's it you know that that uh, vulnerability, the fear, the actual fear. And then the way he he pulls back from the ledge by invoking what it means to be a Starfleet officer, you know, I I, I always say this uh, that the, the, one of the main appeals of Star Trek is that it, it presents an aspirational future. It shows us uh, a window into the kind of people we might be, and and I I'm sure I can speak for everyone on this panel that we all hope we could have the courage. Uh, uh, of, and, and character to make the choice that that Christopher Pike made, and as a corollary, I wonder how many people in life will be presented with a difficult choice, 
and make that choice because they saw Christopher Pike make it. Sure. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Very well said. Cicero, the, the moment of truth for that Captain scream, Pike. yo. Oh man. You know, I mean, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, the, so, so when when this season ends, I don't know how it's going to end. We've got basically two hours left. Um, I don't know how how it's all going to uh, play out, but I know that I will be sad. Not because the season, not only because the season is is has ended, but also uh, presumably so is our time with Anson Mount as Christopher Pike. Um, he has added so much to to what was already uh in in my eyes a top five cast on television right now um that mm-hmm. that it is it's kind of inconceivable to think and i and, you know we already saw in the in the next up that he will be donning the new uniforms that starfleet has provided and be back on the bridge of the enterprise um, but, uh, just, mm. he has added so much to the show. It is, it is really kind of inconceivable to think that we won't, presumably we won't see him again. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, there really isn't anything precluding them from, or precluding the enterprise from making a cameo appearance here and there in the, in the series as it goes forward. But his performance has just been so, so, so good. So good. Um, and then of course, again, you know, as Zachy, Zachy said it perfectly, like just, just the, the, the intestinal fortitude, um, to, to really live by your, the strength of your convictions and your oaths. And in those moments of, uh, of fear, you know, of, of the, you know, the ultimate fear, to be able to uh, find the will to steal yourself and, and do your duty is, I mean, you know, beyond admirable. Very well said. Rachel, the moment of truth for Christopher Pike. Well, Chris, are we all in a relationship <laughs> with our future selves? <laughs> You're going to blow my mind here. You said it was cheating to call this a relationship, (laughs) but I think we're all in a relationship with our future selves. Mm. Um, Yeah. I, I was a little bit like put off by the fact that he like knows it's coming or whatever. I, I don't know. It kind of like made my brain irritated. <laughs> and the cold water, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know. I just like because of Captain Pike, who Captain Pike is. In every scenario, he he's always going to make that choice. He's always going to sacrifice himself for those people. And I I think he like him being cursed with the knowledge of that, and the knowledge that he's going to be so horribly disfigured because of his nature to do that is is very terrible. But I. There's there's no scenario in which he does not make that choice, right? Well, I mean, the difference is, though, that he he could have effectively chosen to save himself in isolation, right? Could he have? Yeah. 
So if he doesn't pick up the time crystal, that's not what is going to happen. That was the way that Tanavik characterized it, that he could, that the future would not have been solidified if he didn't take the time crystal. But because he took it, he effectively sealed his fate. Right. And, and, you know, when you think about it, there, there's a different, like it's the, it's the concretization of what he's shown. Right. So in other words, we, you know, Captain Kirk has to help Captain Picard and, oh, you know, the odds are against us. Situation is grim. And he knows that's an outside possibility that he might die. But, you know, there's something different. And obviously Captain Kirk would make the same choice too. We know that. But if he's told, by the way, this mission ends with you, uh, you know, smushed underneath like a 20-ton bridge. So (laughs) just bear that in mind, right? (laughs) It's the stark finality of it rather than the, the offhand possibility of bodily harm which always exists in the abstract if you're a starfleet captain right yeah yeah you but are it's like you're gonna do this and x number of years from now could be tomorrow could be you know five years from now you're gonna be you know a crispy critter <laughs> who, who speaks in <laughs> 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 I, I think also though there there I, like i understand what rachel is saying but i think also one thing that makes it different from what we've seen over the the 50 years that we've been watching Star Trek, because I think uh, our captain, our leader in all of those, in all of those shows will make that choice. I think what we got to see that is unique to discovery was the palpable fear that, that uh, Pike had and that he, he had to psych himself up, yeah. Um, you know, so he like the the very human response to finding out that information, and then the very human response of of getting yourself back to center, and and then and then mm-hmm. moving forward with what you know must be done. Uh, I think those things are unique to Discovery. Um, while I, I do believe that Rachel is right that. Captains, you know, the, our our number one baby face will always make that choice. <laughs> well, yeah, I think I think you're right. I think that he's being essentially, you know, in the moment. Yes, you always make that choice, but essentially, what he's being presented with is, you know, it. This is going to happen. You're you're going to make this choice, and this is going to happen. Would you do it again? Mm-hmm. Knowing, you know, you're now I will present you with all this knowledge. Would you still do it? And that's not a choice that you get in your life, right? Like mm-hmm. you're, you know, you're presented with right or wrong, but you don't see all the consequences for the, all of the different things. And so he's shown all of the consequences, the horrible consequences, and he still decides, yeah, it's still, mm-hmm. I'm still going to do this, the the right thing. So thank you for helping me appreciate this moment more. <laughs> at the time, I was just like not buying it. Oh man, it was such a and Chris was buying it like a hundred and ten percent. So I couldn't really say anything. Well, I mean, it was it was similarly to Zaki in that as soon as that ex- that first explosion happened, I knew instantly what I was looking at, and I was just yeah. frozen. What I mean, well, the the cool thing about this moment though is for for the few people who watch this show without previous exposure to the franchise. Because there's a couple, I'm sure. Um, this puts into context something that we've all known and that we 
know is in this character's future. Um, but now the full audience knows it. So there's value in that. But I, I mean, as soon as that first explosion happened, I was just frozen. And then I, my jaw dropped when I saw the chair slowly come into view. And I was, I was amazed that we were shown that vision of Pike and an updated version of it. That's even more horrifying than what we saw in the 1960s. And I, it was diminished a little bit when I saw Anson Mount tweet out a picture of him in that makeup <laughs> smiling with his mouth <laughs> on his lap. I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> but when I was watching the episode in the moment, I mean, I, the thing that I think I love the most about him being given the choice is that in some ways, even beyond what we see in Discovery, it gives a greater sense of justice to Pike's ultimate fate, hmm, where right. he is given yeah, kind sure, of his own heaven sure. to live in at the end of all of yeah. this, you know? Yeah. And, well, uh, and, and Chris, just, just to add to that, I think the show, this show has been very smart where, you know, our Telosian excursion a couple weeks ago really solidified the extent of what the Telosians are able to accomplish, right? Yeah. So, so there was that added sense of like, it is real. What Vina is living is real for her, right? So it's not a, a, a hallucination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it, for her, it, you know, it, it drive, drove home the reality. Uh, the other thought that I had was it drives home why Spock risks sure. everything yes, for yes. Pike. Yeah, I didn't yes, think about that right? until yes. right this second no when one you else said it. You're Spock. absolutely right, man. Like no one else believed Spock. They threw him in a sanitarium and here's Pike doing everything because Sp- Spock says it. Yeah. And it's like a debt that he's paying. You know, I mean, I love the context. I mean, you've got you've got two stories that are being told 50 plus years apart, and yet they're intertwining across the mists of time and each is adding context to the other. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a cliche by this point, but you you hear about, you know, the the best leaders, we would follow them into the gates of hell. And, uh, you know, didn't really have that kind of context for that for Pike being that kind of leader. And now we do. Uh, not just because of what we know he does to save those cadets, but everything that we've seen this season, absolutely. And uh, and I mean, it just it it makes it, it kind of does alter the experience of watching the menagerie now, uh, because you know the at least a segment of the the culmination of experiences that Spock had must have had serving with Pike for eleven years. Uh, He's one of the absolute best. Why would you not go to the ends of the earth to try and save a man who deserves to be saved? So, yeah. Spinoff. Spinoff. <laughs> I'm got, just going to be stumping for that. They, they've got the, the Enterprise set now. I mean, I'm sure it was a redress of the Discovery set, but still they have the components. I saw those red rails. It's, it's I, there. You know, I, if, look, I can't imagine i'm the only person that's had this idea i i i am like 97 percent certain the folks in cbs are fully aware of just the the over the moon reaction people have had to pike and spock i'm i'm calling it right now there will be a spinoff series uh, hey i i really hope you're right star trek enterprise 2 or <laughs> i don't know what <laughs> yeah, they need to title. <laughs> right, pike oh, there you go <laughs> 
E squared. No, that has connotations too. Uh, but uh, yeah, well, yeah, I, I, it just reinforces not just the the greatness of Anson Mount's performance, but really the, uh, you know, and another thing too, just just before we dismiss for for this episode, it gives even greater context to the sort of differences between each of the captains. Cause every captain when developed correctly has these identifiable traits that we can look to. And I mean, captain Kirk, it's fun to watch Kirk in command of the enterprise more, more often than not. But the sense of self-sacrifice I think is if, if anything, that's what can define Pike. But the last thought that I had was just that this episode in particular and what we know from the menagerie just gives much greater context to that fortune that he saw left over from Lorca in the ready room way back. I think it was in the first episode of the season. Not every cage is mm. a prison, nor every loss eternal. And wow. it's just, it rings He's much caged by that future. And, and that loss is not eternal. Exactly. So I just, I really appreciate the fact that they threw that in there even more now, but uh, yeah. Any final thoughts guys before we dismiss? Uh, So uh, here's a final thought. I can't wait for these, the next two episodes um, because that's, you know, that's all we got. Um, But, but also like, uh, I hope they don't do like last year. There's a lot of it seems seems like there's a lot of loose ends that need to be tied, and we've got not a lot of time right. to do it. And if there was a, a knock against last season, it was that things, um, you know, the the climax was a little anticlimactic because it was just so, you know, it, you know, it just went at a breakneck breakneck pace, and there wasn't enough time to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it yeah. crashed. It yeah. crashed again. Um, so yeah. So, uh, but but outside of that, man, I'm ready to go. If there was one episode left, I would be much more nervous. But hmm. I think two gives it just enough breathing room. As long as they can stick the landing, then uh, then hopefully the second season will end better than the first one. But I mean, at this point, I'm pretty confident in saying that this season oh, yeah. is better than the first one. Uh, I mean, now that we've seen the majority of the episodes and I liked the first season quite a bit, all things considered. So, you know, the fact that if they can keep the momentum going into next year, all the better, all the better. But, uh, well, I think that's going to do it for episode 40 of Discovery Debrief. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please like and follow us on our social media channels. And if you would be so kind, we'd also appreciate it if you were to review for the show on iTunes or Facebook. Google Podcasts, wherever you listen. It only takes a minute, and we'll be happy to read your review on the air when it's posted. Speaking of which, Debrief is engaged into a partnership with the developers of officially licensed browser-based game Star Trek Alien Domain Incursion. Send us proof of your review of the show on social media or via email, and we'll send you a key code that's worth approximately $60 of in-game items. It's that simple. If you have any questions, you can follow the show on Twitter at DSC Debrief, where you can also find all of our individual Twitter handles. And feel free to send us questions through Twitter, our Facebook like page, or by emailing us at hailingfrequencies at discoverydebrief.com. 
Please be sure to set your courses for this feed for future episodes, and be sure to join us as we convene next time to discuss the next episode of our subject series as we prepare for the inevitable end of Season 2. As always, though, until we meet again, please go boldly, my friends. My friends.